1: The United States has had an amazing history regarding business and business development, but there were many amazing elements that contributed to it becoming the largest economy in the world. A new book takes a historical look at many of the things that contributed to that level of growth. The book is titled Americana, A 400-Year History of American Capitalism, and the author, Boo Shonavasan, joins us now on the show. Boo, great to have you with us, sir.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So,
1: I mean, obviously, when you think about this, and I think it's an important element to look at this historically, because even going back before uh, the American Revolution, there were elements to the United States developing itself as a as a well before the American before the United States developing itself as a business quantity.
0: Exactly. And I think that's central to, to how um, we should look at the American experience through the lens of economic motivations. And that's one of the things that I look to do. Um, you know, my family came here as immigrants, and, um, you know, we came here from India. So when you're coming here from a democracy and you're coming to another democracy, you know, it's not necessarily you're coming for liberties and freedoms. Those things are certainly tremendous um, assets. Right. But really, you're coming for um, those economic motivations. And, you, and I trace that back to the Mayflower and the Virginia company. After all, it is a company, meaning that there's a profit, and profit motive, and uh, you start peeling back the onions a little bit in the layer. And you start seeing that you know they had shareholders and right. pro-rata distributions and all of that.
1: Which is interesting, because that when you think about the, the, what is taught as American history, and they talk about the Mayflower, they don't necessarily talk about the business elements of what that actually was.
0: Exactly. And you know what? I mean, you almost have to ask yourself a very basic question. How did a bunch of persecuted religious separatists afford to charter a giant ship? Right. You know, for, for a transatlantic voyage, you know, if I were to tell you that 100 people in Central America that were looking to flee decided to charter a 737, you'd, you know, you'd want to know how were they able to finance that, what did they expect to do when they got here. And, and you can look at all the primary text. It's so heavily detailed as to what the, what the transactions were with their financiers. They right. were known as the merchant adventurers, um, You know how much a share was, all of those types of things.
1: But you obviously you, – you take a, a an in-depth look at, at various elements uh, to the growth uh, of the American economy. And, and when I say various elements, I mean specific products. Uh, like tobacco, Uh, and and I find that interesting that you can correlate history through these actual products and how they kind of came up over potentially a couple hundred-year period of time.
0: Well, into 400 years, and I looked at—so what I stumbled into, the the device that I used was to explore American history as a series of next big things. Right. And and I somewhat stumbled into that accidentally. Um, You know, in 1995, I was taking a freshman history class from the acclaimed historian Richard White, Uh, who's now at Stanford, and he has a recent book uh, that just came out on the Gilded Age. Uh, But his assignment in the class was to trace our family's uh, history and connect it with American history. And, of course, my family had been here since 1984, so there wasn't much to connect except through economic themes, which is we'd come to Buffalo, New York, and then eventually we made it out west when my uh, mother joined a biotech company in Seattle. And on from there, from 1995 onwards, we saw the next big thing of the Internet. It was a very, uh, was a very big thing, obviously, in Seattle and Silicon Valley. Microsoft was a very big company in, in software and PCs. So it's almost my personal history to a large degree influenced the lens through which, uh, which I saw my own, our own economic motivations in coming to this country and just the environment that I was in and seeing how transformative some of these changes are and how fast it happens.
1: 844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in, we're talking with Abu Srinivasan, who is the author of Americana, a 400-Year History of American Capitalism. 844-942-7866. We, we, obviously, in the last probably 20 years or so, seemingly the word entrepreneurism has, has become larger and larger in the uh, American vernacular. Uh, but in, in looking back historically myself, uh, there seems to be an unbelievable amount of entrepreneurship when you go back into the 1600s uh, in this country, and it's really I think one of the core tenets of what the United States was built off of,
0: without question. You know, I always think about um, democracy and capitalism as kind of the twin operating systems of America, and I just really don't see one existing without the other, at least in uh, in America and what we what we know of um, America to be today. And I think exactly that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial activity, was in the Gilded Age was it was phenomenal. Now it's phenomenal as well. But I think it's a it's a very central aspect of the American DNA.
1: The the Civil War uh, obviously is a huge part of American history, and you go into the impact that slavery had when you think about the American economy. And and I think it's it's a question that a lot of people have asked, Uh, but. You know, where this country could have gone if the South had won the war.
0: No, no question. And what would have happened to California? You know, California. That too, yes. Yeah. Right. At that time, California was almost like Hawaii or Alaska. It really wasn't connected to any other American states. It was an island out there. Um, and it had, you know, the Rocky Mountains. There was no telegraph that connected uh, California to the. Um, to the uh, eastern seaboard at the time that the civil war had started there was no transcontinental railroad either you know it, it was either you had to make it through land or go through panama or nicaragua or through the um, around south america so that's a very much a question and uh, one of the other things that influenced uh, you know just my version of um, what had led to the civil war was this big bubble in slave prices you know from the crash yeah. of 1857 all the way to the lead up you had slave prices actually go up. So after the Dred Scott decision in 1857, um, you saw it go up, and, and that's one of the other things that we were kind of um, this, this dogma of markets being perfectly rational, efficient markets. That whole thing, I look at that obviously with a little bit of a skeptical eye because I'd seen what happened with dot-com stocks in the late 90s, where you know companies that were worth $100 today were a dollar, you know, six months, nine months, a year from now. So, you know, markets don't price everything exactly perfectly. Right. They do over time, but but not necessarily in the moment. And that was just one of those times where, you know, slave prices were in this complete bubble. They were decoupled from cotton prices, yeah. and it made the south just believe that slaves, the institution of slavery was worth a lot more than it, you know, ultimately. Turned out to be obviously.
1: Were those two elements, slavery and cotton, probably the two key components that let's just say the South had won the war? You know that that would have impacted the U.S. economy moving forward.
0: Without question, I mean, when you look at the cotton before the Civil War was without was of course America's largest export, and before that it was tobacco. You know, in the pre-revolution uh, America, colonial America, tobacco was by far the largest export. So even though the North was industrialized, it was industrializing, it wasn't industrialized like England was industrialized. I mean, the United States still imported um, iron, for instance, for rails. It wasn't self-sufficient in iron. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, that dynamic certainly does exist. And, you know, there's a great book uh, called Empire of Cotton by the Harvard historian Sten Beckert. And he goes into how in Egyptian history... The Civil War factors in very prominently because in the 1860s is when Egyptian cotton production went up through the roofs. Same thing in India, too. So, you know, you can see a very strong correlation when the embargo and the blockade happened, the southern blockade, um, the Union blockade of southern ports, and cotton couldn't get out. You know, you had to have new supply, and that new supply came from Egypt and India.
1: You also – Spend time. And I think in general, we, we know that when we look back at history, uh, World War I and World War II, maybe specifically more so World War II, was really the boon to the manufacturing build here in the United States. And it, again, it's something to repeat how important and not that you want to dwell on this, but I think it's important to bring forth
0: how important wars have been for economic growth here in the United States. And even before the United States entered the war, in 1915 and 1916, American exports went, you know, grew fairly substantially, uh, even before. And same thing in in 1940 and 1941, American exports, again, uh, very, very substantial, primarily because in the earlier um, earlier war, in the Great War, the United States was a primary oil exporter at that time. You know, it wasn't, um, so oil exporter, steel... Um, what, what you name it, everything required for modern warfare um, was produced in the United States. And you know, given the late entry of the United States into both wars, um, you know, it just allowed fresh resources, fresh materials, fresh troops. Um, very central to, uh, very central to, to the war efforts in both. Obviously, the industrialization and industry becoming a part of the, the military machine.
1: Yet it feels like that in the most recent wars that the United States has been in, specifically I'm, I'm talking about Korea and Vietnam, th- that element of growth hasn't really been there, correct?
0: No, yes, it hasn't been there, and primarily because, uh, you know, this is the, obviously the, the great and famous speech by Eisenhower, his farewell address to the nation, where he talks about the military-industrial complex, and, and he lays out the case for why that's the case, that, um that you know, before you could change an industry and and transform it into military uh, into military production within the six months a year, but with the rise of computers, he actually uses the term computers and technology and research and development required during the Cold War. Right. You really couldn't have that happen. So you had to have a very specific military industry, and, and that's one of the that's one of the things that just decoupled. That you always have the, there, it's not necessarily a catalyst for industry being repurposed for warfare because you already have a specialized industry that's um, always being prepared.
1: Bhush is the author of the book Americana, 400-Year History of American Capitalism. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney 21 One of the other uh, kind of interesting pieces that the United States have, some countries have this as well, uh is the is the relationship between the the what we see as the federal government and, and growth at the federal level in comparison to the states and the economic elements that they bring forth here
0: yes and you know every you, you made the earlier point of in terms of war it's actually kind of this interesting uh pattern that you find that every time there's a war the federal government gets much bigger in terms of its expenditures and it doesn't quite recede back to the earlier levels and and you can find these Statistics of the U.S. Census. They have a um, Economic Statistics Bureau, and you can just go through it, and you can see during civil during the Civil War, you know, it it just this big change in the magnitude in terms of the scale of government, and same thing during World War One, World War Two, and it doesn't quite recede back. and And certainly, I think that's the um, you know that's the it's the argument that Shelby Foote makes, in that uh, in Ken Burns' Civil War, you know, we went from an R to an is, you know, like America was a collection of states where we would refer to ourselves as the United States are rather than the United States is. And and a lot of that that forging of this disparate states and interests is the rise of the federal government.
1: We are joined by Abu uh, Shrinivasan, who is the author of the book Americana. Again, your comments welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Looney 21 So we have all of that growth you know, coming up through the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and World War One and World War Two, And now we're in the age of the Internet, and, and seemingly it feels like we're on a a—, a a path right now to even greater economic growth in the years to come, correct?
0: It seems like it, and you would think so, but where does that economic growth happen? It's obviously Silicon Valley hasn't missed a beat, um, but you know, you're seeing the election results from 2016 where it's not a coincidence that you have states that are known as Rust Belt states that were the, the, you know, the swing factor in the election results. So, I think it's a matter – I don't think that they, the answer is quite clear-cut. I think that previously the next big things in American history always created a lot of jobs, whether it's the movement into the suburbs. You had, obviously, home construction that would create a lot of jobs. And the, the worker could also participate both as a consumer and as a worker, cheaper homes, but he's also getting high wages when he's building those homes. These the new next big things for the past 35 years, I think, has decoupled that equation. I don't think that the the American worker can significantly contribute to iPhones, for instance, right. or to the internet. And I think that that's the that's the kind of the unsettling factor that that I think you're seeing manifested. In, in many different ways.
1: Because a lot of people would, would like to be able to say we could see uh, a, another manufacturing boom here in the United States and to be able to put people back to work in, in that area. But a, a lot of people just assume that, that that's just not possible anymore.
0: Yes. And people assume that's not possible. And that, but at the same time, you know, we've had 45 years of very significant trade deficits that do not seem to be tightening you know they seem to be widening and this is not And trade deficits do not naturally happen for, with first world countries it's not a rule Germany and Japan certainly do not have very large trade deficits and in in fact not only that they don't even have oil so the United States not only has Silicon Valley it also has enormous oil reserves it's, you know, it's, it's always in the in the top three in terms of oil production it might you know some years it's back to number one it used to be number one from 1859 all the way to the early 70s right considering that it still runs these very large trade deficits, I don't know whether that's necessarily the case, that you cannot indeed start up manufacturing in this country, because Germany has high wages, and they certainly are able to do that.
1: How how do you think the the impetus of wars had affected some of the companies that that were traditional staples here in the United States but not necessarily linked directly to uh, the war effort you you bring up an interesting story about uh, the Bush family uh, the, the 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 Budweiser heirs uh, and and the fact that I guess they used to they used to throw parties prior to World War one they used to throw parties every year for the Kaiser's birthday and, and then you get to World War one and and they gotta they have to get rid of that
0: Right, right. Well, and that, that's actually, there's a number of factors come into that. One, you have obviously a lot of anti-German sentiment because um, of Lusitania, the, the ship that was, um, sure.
1: that yeah. was
0: drowned, um down. And then on top of that, you have the income tax. So you had the 16th Amendment, which gave you the income tax. And during World War I, the federal government was able to rely on this brand new um, brand new constitutional authority, the income tax, and it was able to finance the war. And at that, at that time, right before the income tax, the tariffs, and the uh, taxes on alcohol and tobacco were the primary ways that the federal government financed itself. Um, as, but during World War One, that obviously shifted, where the federal government discovered that income taxes is a far superior revenue mechanism, and that's what allowed prohibition to essentially happen, because the yeah. federal government was not reliant upon alcohol revenue. So you had multiple things um, you know, that, that kind of coincided into prohibition.
1: Were there other stories that you came across that, that kind of caught you off guard as as you were researching the book?
0: Many, many, many. Um, I think that, you know, the, you look at Gone with the Wind, for instance. That movie came out in, in late 1939. Yeah. And it's this, um, it's you know, it was received with huge pageantry in the South. They had a parade, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I think it was a, a statewide holiday in Georgia. Uh, Mayor Hartsfield in Atlanta, um, you know, was, you know, was... Hugely instrumental in coordinating the marketing, and yet at that time, Hattie McDaniel, who plays Mammy in, uh, in, in the in the movie, was not welcome at any of the events. And then, you know, right, obviously, and it's, it's at the same time, Americans are debating Hitler and what's happening in Germany, and it just, you know, it's some of these very stark and striking parallels and uh, you know contradictions that that just come out at you. But it's, American history is so complex and so fascinating that. Yeah. Uh, you, you never fail to run into those stories.
1: Well, I can't imagine what some of the stories you probably uh, came uh, about when you're talking about the civil rights movement in the 1960s.
0: Absolutely. Now that didn't factor as much into the into the prime narrative. I think the okay. suburbia did, because you have you know we tend to think about um, segregation as largely uh, something that happened in the South, but not too far from where you are in Levittown, Pennsylvania, the second Levittown. You had you know this big event in 1957 where the first African American family tries to move in, and they're not received very warmly. You know, it makes the front pages of newspapers around the country, uh, and this is not someone that um, that couldn't afford to be there. I mean, African Americans at that time, you know, they were they were on the GI Bill, they had you know nice wages in um, in industrial jobs. Um, Yet, you know, you had this resistance even in the North, many, many places in the North, all of these new housing developments. So that that factored in very largely into the narrative.
1: Boo Shonavason is the author uh, of the book Americana, a 400-year history of American capitalism. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Just about a minute left. So, I I mean, as you look at—it may may be hard to do when you're talking about a 400-year segment of time, but— I mean, are there core things that, that you have come out uh, f- better understanding about the growth of the American con- economy over this period of time?
0: I did. I think that the central takeaway that I had, and this is you know largely driven by curiosity, the whole discovery process, the research process, and that I think that you cannot think about American economic development as an ideology. I think that you have to strip away ideology from American capitalism and really think about it as a very practical system. Um, you know, sometimes it needs to be regulated, where excesses needs to be stripped away. Other times, you you, you know really it harnesses the creative energy of entrepreneurs in ways that you could not foresee. So I think it's a it's a just a complicated system, and I think that you have to look at it very pragmatically and utilize those forces very pragmatically. And that's what I've seen emerge. That I've seen this a, a it, it's not an ideology, but democracy and capitalism combining, in um, in and clashing and tempering themselves and emerging in this very significant system, obviously.
1: Great having you on the show, Boo. Thank you very much. It's, hey, I, I'm a history buff, so anytime I can do something on American history, I, I'm very much into it. So thank you for your time today. It definitely. Thank you very much. Thank you. The the book, again, is Americana, a 400-year history of American capitalism. It's a great way to kind of link those two big elements in the history of our uh, country together. So uh, many thanks to Boo for joining us here on the show.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.